I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. <laughs> it's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Special thanks as usual to one of our top contributing patrons today, Alex. Yeah. Thank you as always for your support. Love you. <laughs> Therapist, next- <laughs> Good luck. Therapist Next Door podcast is 100% listener funded and commits that we will never work with advertisers. We do not believe that it is our business or our job to tell you what kind of mattress to buy or encourage you to give money to an exploitative therapy service. As we believe that labor should be paid, we ask that listeners who are able to contribute, contribute what they can so that we can continue to be a platform to clinicians who further destigmatize mental health and demystify therapy. Every episode, we thank one of our top contributing patrons. So thank you again, Alex. Learn more about perks and ways to support us at patreon.com slash tndpodcast. That's patreon.com slash tndpodcast. I can spell. For easy access, visit our Instagram at tndpod to find the link in our bio. And Sarah, let's get on to our show. This week, we welcome Cassie Smith, who works as a licensed clinical social worker and a private practice therapist. Let's go. Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing someone in a helping profession, asking questions that you want the answers to, and answering questions you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a board-certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I am a white, straight, cisgendered female, and my pronouns are she, hers, and I recently, I guess, discovered or rediscovered sticker books. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Like books of like sheets of stickers in a book or you putting stickers in a book with pages. Sh- sheets of stickers with sheets of paper with stickers on them, like art books that are now stickers mm-hmm. that you can just take things out and stick them on. It's really cool. There's a very satisfied look on your face right now. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I uh I'm making a family calendar for us and just peppering it with these curated stickers. Maybe I'll send you a picture of it. That's totally fine. Please do that. I'd love to. Um and so now I'm like uh yeah, I'm on the hunt for sticker books. Uh if you find any good ones, let me know. Like this is just it's it's just like a cool like a book you would buy at a museum like an art book, but then like parts of it are stickers. All of it is stickers, but like parts of it are cut out that you can stick on things. So yeah. That's so cool. I love that. (laughs) I love it so much. Me too. Despite how I just said that. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Sarah, an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I'm a cishet white lady and my pronouns are she, her. And I, after two and a half years of living here, have finally found a new hairstylist. And <gasps> I think I'm setting down roots here. Congratulations. That's a very important step. Thank you. I. She also offered me, she gave me like business cards for a, a massage therapist and a Reiki master, like on the same street. And I'm finally, you know, like I, like I told you off air, Joanna, like we, this, this, this political group that my my partner and I are in we're also just doing outreach in the surrounding communities and I'm feeling like we found home Aww. this is profound yeah hope we can actually find a permanent home here <laughs> <It's very laughs> I cool. hope so too uh, but yeah I you know I have been resisting setting down roots and mm. as many many renters can understand you it, you can be hesitant but you know I'm, I'm both of us are tired of not not planting down roots so we're planting down roots and it's been been pretty cool yeah or just not getting your hair cut like I usually do until you well, like, go home and the hairstylist that is like your friend your family friend like has a spot for you I had been driving over an hour to see my old hairstylist who like did my hair for my wedding she did my hair for years um and and I love her dearly I, just, I, I, I can't and I shouldn't make the drive anymore I went to patronize my own community oh yeah man the de- the disparate definitions for patronize really suck <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah oh english yeah correct so that's what's on my mind joanna that's great yeah yeah we're both so tired today yeah and that's okay that doesn't make us less of people it does make us maybe not the same kind of funny that people have come to expect or yeah. certainly loopy funny we're definitely loopy funny right now 
And all of the awkward silences will be taken out. So when you listen to this, you'll be like, what are they talking about? Yeah, and like, like, it'll be like, oh, there was two minutes of just us staring at each other virtually. Non-judgmentally. Yeah, just like, have, okay, here we are. We arrived at optimal friendship. Yeah, <laughs> Silence, I feel like, is optimal. Like, you can just be like, mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, anyway, how clean are your floors? You always ask me this, but I'm going to ask you first. Oh my gosh, I feel so... Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> I, I feel my floors are fine. As per usual, I haven't thought about it since we did our last recording. So how about you? Mm. Any housekeeping? No, no housekeeping. We promise to never do accents again, even if they're French. <laughs> uh, I can't promise that. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh... My floors are clean, so stay tuned after the break uh, for our history lesson for today. time for our lesson. The lesson is compiled facts describing history and or current events, terminology, and other good things. This will give context for the field art interview we works at. Joanna, we have a couple of sources for today. Oh, okay. I'm excited. Via ruralhealthinfo.org, we have an article entitled Rural Mental Health, and we have an article entitled Rural Definitions for Health Policy and Research. I didn't prepare myself for how often I'd have to say rural today. Okay, yeah. Um, I'm now overthinking it, and I haven't even said it yeah, yet, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the rural, the rural, the rural. The rural. <laughs> No content warning today, so listen at leisure. Listen at your leisure, whatever sentence feels best for you. All right, Joanna, first we're going to talk about what is rural? And I want to answer you that no one knows. Okay. <laughs> uh, the Go definitions ahead. vary greatly uh, before I start reading this. And they often, when they, many of the variations are uh, highly offensive and highly misunderstand exactly right. what, and have never been to rural list. Okay. All right. So we'll talk about some just, technical technical US-based uh, terminology. Mm -hmm. The US has evolved from a rural agriculture society to a society dominated by its urban population. Depending on which definition is used, roughly 20% of the US population resides in rural areas. Approximately three-fourths of the nation's counties are rural, as is 75% of its landmass. While the rural population is the minority, it is the size of France's total both rural and urban population, which is wild. Oh, that's a lot. And now we've mentioned France twice. So, so my French accent is totally called yeah. for. I'm not going to do it again, but we'll see. <laughs> as, important, as important as the rural population and its resources are to the nation, there is considerable confusion as to exactly what rural means and where rural populations reside. Rural is a multifaceted concept about which there is no universal agreement. Defining rurality can be elusive and frequently relies on stereotypes and personal experiences. The term suggests pastoral landscapes, unique demographic structures and settlement patterns, isolation, low population density, extractive economic activities, and distinct sociocultural milieus. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of that's a lot of beautiful things, but also exploitative practices, which are a lovely couple. Only a small fraction of the rural population is involved in farming, and towns range from tens of thousands to a handful of residents. The proximity of rural areas to urban cores and services may range from a few miles to hundreds of miles. So that's another really big piece about rural areas is that some of them are a couple miles out, like PA. Yeah, yeah. Pennsylvania. And other ones are what like like I, like I just mentioned, like counties away from services. Talk a little bit about rural healthcare. I just want to point out that I said rurality a few minutes ago. And yeah, I yeah. I'm a, I was I'm, really impressed. Thank you so much. Very very impressed by that. Yeah. I'm out of breath. Rural healthcare. On average, rural populations have relatively more elderly people and children, higher unemployment and high and underemployment rates and lower population density with higher percentages of poor, uninsured, and underinsured residents. Rural populations are more vulnerable than their urban counterparts to economic downturns because of their concentrated economic specialization. Other unique circumstances include longer travel distances to and higher costs associated with needed healthcare services, high rates of fixed overhead per patient revenue, fewer healthcare providers, and a greater emphasis on generalists. Healthcare facilities with limited scopes of service, economically fragile hospitals with high closure rates, 
greater dependency on Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement, higher rates of chronic diseases and different clinical practice behaviors, practice arrangements and reimbursement levels. I'm just thinking of, you know, even different uh, cost of living. And if you're going to come into a city for healthcare, like how much is it going to cost to park your car? And is that something yes. that you can afford? And if you are in one of the few places that actually has public transportation, how much will that cost also? And how long will, yeah, the cost, the fit, the actual cost and then the cost of your time. Yeah. 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 Okay. One study found that residents of counties with larger numbers of workers who commute out of the county and who travel more than 30 minutes each way to reach their care providers received substantially lower levels of health resources. Access to proximate services for care often make the difference between life and death. I agree. The environment in which rural physicians and other providers practice also differs enormously both across rural areas and between rural and urban areas. Physicians who practice in smaller and more remote rural towns practice in a medical care delivery system characterized by financially vulnerable medical organizations, small populations, long distances to specialists, and tertiary hospitals. Longer practice hours, lack of collegial support, limited access to advanced technologies, and relatively high fixed costs per delivered service. This milieu creates especially difficult circumstances for rural providers and populations. Rural physician practice concerns, patient privacy, clinical adaptations in the absence of nearby specialists, generalist scarcities, quality assurance programs, compliance with the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, regulations, and continuing medical education are different from those of their large city contemporaries. Differences that have a potential impact on health outcomes. While there are many common threads between urban clinical medicine and its rural cousin, there are many substantive differences. I'm thinking too, just the, you know, if, if you're a doctor in a rural area and you want to go to a conference, how much more money it's going to cost you to go there. Uh, I know I ourselves are going to a conference soon and it's just like getting to the airport no big deal for me maybe a little bit more difficult for sarah because she doesn't live in the city so and it's only a suburb like if i was in yes. something more rural how much more challenging would that be yeah yeah oh, exactly. i'm so excited about this interview Joanna. yeah me like, too so much during this so yeah, yeah buckle up or you know stay comfy <laughs> buckle up in blankets yeah oh B-U-I-B, buckle up in blankets. Ooh, yeah. I like that a lot. Me too. All right, All right. well, stay tuned. We'll talk to you soon, I guess. Cassie is a licensed clinical social worker born and raised in North Carolina. She has lived in the mountains of Western North Carolina for the majority of her life and witnessed and lived experience with poverty, oppression, and trauma. She is a strong advocate for destigmatizing mental health, so are we, in the mountain community and promoting inclusivity of all populations with particular respect to mountain folks, the Native American community, and women. Her primary modalities include CBT, EMDR, and narrative therapies, as well as tools from other modalities. She has over 10 years of experience in the mental health field and opened her private practice a year and a half ago to better serve her community. Her practice is inclusive to all identities, ethnicities, and nationalities, and is regarded proudly as a non-judgmental space by all of the clients she has served who complete completed an exit survey. Welcome, Cassie. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We're so happy to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do? I know I just read your your bio, but just give us like a, a, a quick rundown of everything you do. Yeah. Well, gosh, it's so broad. Um, I work with uh, children, adults, teenagers, primarily focused on trauma work um, because there's a lot of trauma in this community, as in a lot of communities, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my primary. I love working with kids. My youngest is four right now wow. that I'm working with. Um, and so that's like my wheelhouse is some behavioral intervention stuff and uh, trauma. Yeah. I was I was actually just watching something where there was a child like a a child therapist on and I was like man props to those childs there it's so difficult to work with children. Yeah, I love it so much just because it is so 
erratic. It's never what you actually expect. Um, and that's something that I love about my job. So yeah, you, you do have to be really fluid with, oh, with yeah. kids. Yeah. Yes. In body right. and <laughs> um, treatment. And yes. families. If, oh, yes. I do some family work um, to work with the kids because ultimately whenever you're working with kids, you work with families too. So that's been probably more challenging also just trying to get everyone on the same page and, but it's, it's good work. Yeah. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the mental health needs of folks in, in rural areas, especially rural Appalachia? Yes. So specifically trying to think about the population here. So the biggest thing is um, mental health is hard to come by first just because of the scarcity of it. Um, so there's a lot of monopolized community mental health agencies. Um, so that limits the options, which is ultimately why I went into private practice so that I could serve people on my terms uh, instead of having to go through you know, these community mental health agencies. So that's one piece. And then there's also the internalized um, shame and stigma around mental health with asking for help in this area. I, I believe and I've heard from, you know, other people in the community that like, as mountain folk, we don't particularly care for people from the outside coming in and telling us how to live our life. And um, so that's something that I get to bring to the table as someone who's, you know, lived here my whole life and can relate and grew up in poverty. And so um, I'm able to provide insights and this comfort for people to be vulnerable in that way. That's amazing that you're able to give that. Yeah, yeah. What's standing out to me is the the intersection of of poverty and 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 a rural community, mm-hmm. and what you mentioned really uh, poignantly about we don't like folks coming in and telling us how to do things because those are the two groups. I mean, there are many groups that we do love to police on how they uh, that the public loves to police on how they care for themselves. But oh, of course, rural communities and impoverished communities are at the top of that list, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in Appalachia, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of variation in financial stuff. Uh, there's a lot of people that come in here from outside because, you know, the mountains are just people and who wouldn't want to live here? But it is, there is that aspect of like, is this gentrification? Is this something that we want also mm-hmm. um, as far as opening our communities um, to other people? So yeah, that's a, that's definitely an intersection there of of difficulty for a lot of people. You had mentioned that the clinics were monopolized. Can you speak a little bit more about that? So uh, it's awful, actually, in my opinion, um, because what happens is, you know, there's these, and people have talked about shifts over time. There would be like a time where there's multiple community mental health agencies and there's a lot of choices. And then they just start eating each other. And so then there's just like one big one. And what I have noticed is that once, as soon as people start to get comfortable, then that is eaten by another corporate another company or agency and the rules change, the policies change, the therapists change. So there is a lot of uncertainty that comes with getting their needs met. So for instance, right now we're in a, you know, just everyone getting swallowed up kind of time period and people are having a hard time getting seen, Um, specifically people, you know, impoverished and who have Medicaid and don't have any other really good options in the community. So they have to wait sometimes months before they can get their psychiatric needs, before they can get their, you know, therapeutic needs. And it's, it's more than unfortunate. It's, it's disgusting. (laughs) I wish it were better. You know, I wish our systems were better. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I can imagine I, I worked with clients who, you know, it was their first, I was their first, you know, therapist in mm-hmm. their, you know, 60 years of life. So me leaving had like a huge impact on them, yes. you know, that that like it takes so much to build up this trust, especially when you have a distrust of large companies, mm-hmm. you know, understandably. Absolutely. And along in that, like in that same thread is like you're speaking to the tr- over. So like whenever, you know, another company gets eaten up and they're not happy with the policies or procedures being implemented, then you're going to lose therapists. And then you lose trust in the community that 
they're going to have the same therapist for three years whenever they only get a, the same therapist for maybe six months. Mm. Um, it's awful. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine having to switch every six months and it's been bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But lo- luckily I have had a really good experience with, um, I've met people in my, you know, experiences with mental health. And a lot of them are branching out into private practice and doing some pro bono work, doing some sliding scale work, you know, just really trying to accommodate the needs of people who live here in poverty and that need it, you know, those, um, those communities and those peoples. So it's, that's been the silver lining, I think, is even though there has been a lot of company monopolization, there's also been some of these that have come out and there's a lot of practice practitioners right now. Yeah. Well said, Cassie, I appreciate your courage in speaking out against something that is clearly impacting your community. Mm -hmm. Um, Joanna and I could talk for hours and have talked for (laughs) hours about our disdain for uh, exploitative group practices as well as community mental health systems. I mean, for-profit in general, of course, we're all for-profit to a degree, but when it Mm -hmm. comes to also endangering both the therapists who work for you and the clients, then then there are some changes that you need to make. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So because impoverished individuals are so misunderstood and uh, characterized, judged, Mm -hmm. um, put down, um, have their needs constantly taken advantage of, have their needs constantly not being met. Could you give us kind of a elementary school quick rundown about what folks in poverty are dealing like, dealing with day to day? Yes. So my favorite thing to do whenever people first come in and they tell me, you know, they're really struggling financially is I do um, offer, you know, sliding scale to the best of my ability. Um, Open Path has been a great, uh, I don't know if you guys have that resource, but um, they've been a great resource for the community in the state. I've seen virtually and um, in open path. So I always start with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is the elementary, you know, kind of like like psych 101, you know. Um, So I'm like, okay, let's check your safety. Let's, let's see how your neighborhood, do you feel safe? Do you feel safe in your home? Um, Do you have enough food? What resources might you need that are community-based that we could provide for you um, or link you with? Because we can't do any healing until we feel safe. So that's where I always start. And I mean, surprisingly or unsurprisingly, I guess, uh, the a lot of the people that come in, they're like, oh, yeah, no, I've been able to access a lot of the community resources to like our food pantries and our um, kitchens and, you know, some of the free dental clinics and and things like that. So we do have those resources. I just don't know how well known they're always um, coming up with it. It's amazing. I, I, what a great what a great approach that is and what a humanizing approach that is, because you're right, if someone is struggling if someone is houseless if someone is chronically mm-hmm. unemployed or I, there are jobs not available if someone is hungry mm-hmm. someone ha- is hungry because they are feeding individuals that depend on them they're not yes. going to be able to heal from and process trauma certainly yep absolutely and then it's i mean it really just layers on top of itself then it's got the shame and the trauma associated mm-hmm. with not being able to care for yourself and you know your children if you have children so we can process some of those and challenge some of those negative uh core beliefs or those values that aren't in line with, you know, what, I, what strengths I can see in them and being able to do a lot of this. So it's been good work. Yeah. I'd imagine very tough on you. You know, maybe <laughs> I <don't> know. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm just, because I do have the lived experience mm-hmm. whenever I have these conversations with clients, I'm just like, yeah, I get it. Like, it sucks. And there's a lot of shame in asking for help, both community value based with the Appalachian culture and just the societal stigma in general of asking for help. Like, oh, you're not able to provide for your children. How, you know, demeaning. So I try to come from a place of, yeah, I grew up. I didn't know if I was going to have my house. I didn't know if I was going to have food, you know, like, so I think that helps them feel heard, understood, and less shame um, in being able to communicate those needs in that moment. I can imagine you're one of the first people, like people in a position of relative power that many people encounter that are not blaming them first. Oh, yeah. It's it's so unfortunate because there is that 
immediate, like, well, what are you doing to fix it? You know, and mm-hmm. how just demoralizing that is to have that conversation with somebody whenever they don't know where to put their foot on the rock wall, you know, like where are they supposed to go? So, yeah, I, I think, I mean, and the thing that I love about social work too, is that's kind of what we're taught through our programs, like meet the people where they're at. But in practice, I think that's not always um, applied, unfortunately, where we turn to problem solving versus learning and hearing a lot of the time. Yeah, it sounds like you're finding a good balance between system navigation and empowering folks, which both are both are needed, but you you definitely cannot do system system navigation without they won't last. Folks mm-hmm. won't want to and won't be able to engage if they think that everybody's just trying to manage them and does not care about what their needs are. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really that's really incredible. It's really heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the reality, though, and I I don't know, you know, what people see from the outside, or if we do the thing where we're blinders on, like, oh, this doesn't happen around me, or oh, this isn't happening in my community, but it's always happening. It's happening everywhere. So, and it's always happened it. here, and you know, it's always happened in our country. There, there, there was never a time where we did not have chronically impoverished individuals, and there's also never a time that we were working very hard and setting goals to pull people out of poverty because because it is next to impossible to come out of poverty. And I think our priorities as a nation have definitely been skewed. I mean, the reason why it even exists is because of the way our systems run in the capital, you know, kind of society. So it makes sense why it's not fixed. It's frustrating and aggravating, but. Yep, it does not need to happen. Yeah. And I mean, it's just like exacerbated by, you know, like capitalism taking advantage of those communities and just like Mm -hmm. the horror stories and trauma that is, Mm -hmm. you know, imparted on communities all over the United States forever. Yeah. And then media. Yeah, exactly. Joanna. And then media reinforces it by convincing folks that aren't in poverty that like, oh, well, like we've all seen a caricature of a a person from Appalachia. And I want to make sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. A person from Appalachia on TV or on movies, and then it just makes folks who don't live there and aren't of that socioeconomic status be like, oh, well, you know, this is deserved. We don't, I I, I say this, I say this, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast, but I say this in my regular life. If all of us were truly aware of what folks in deep desperation were having to go through every day, we'd be ripping up the sidewalks, all Mm -hmm. of us every day. Mm -hmm. We'd be infuriated. Yeah, Um, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. the, like, I, I love you mentioned caricatures because, you know, it's, it's so accurate um, and sad. The yeah. pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing, which, you know, there is some element of we do need to create action, but we cannot always supersede the barriers that have been put are in our way to achieving whatever we're trying to achieve. So. Yeah, yes, 100%. And pull yourself up by your bootstraps is so individualistic. Like if we were all pulling our bootstraps up to support and grow our community, yeah, like Mm -hmm. pull them up. (laughs) Pulling up other people's bootstraps. Like here, let me help you with that. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I'm just, I, it, it brings up, you know, that the, the opioid, opioid epidemic started yep. in West Virginia, what's happening right now in Ohio with the mm-hmm. train derailment. And it's like still very, very bad and being covered up. Like it, I think there's so many parts of our system that are taking advantage of people and mm-hmm. then they have a hard time finding help. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the greater trust, right? So like things aren't getting fixed. So why should I even ask for help if I know I'm not going to get it and it's going to put me in a vulnerable position Mm -hmm. um, and make me look weak? Like I can't do what I need to do when I know it's not going to be helped anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And to a certain degree that that strength, you know, when we're talking about the binary of weakness and strength, that strength is really like all you have. So I risk it. Um, actually whatever mm-hmm. choice to make even if it's perceived perceived yeah. strength you know yeah oh yeah, yeah. perceived mm-hmm. strength is a <laughs> yeah it's almost just like a, a a wall of paper like if I open it a little bit it's gonna crumble down so like I cannot be vulnerable at all mm-hmm. and I, I do think you know speaking to the culture around here that that's the 
you know, that's the thought is this is not and is not generally a safe way for me to ask for help. So I'm not going to. That's why mental health is so difficult. You have to gain trust and you have to gain trust over a period of time. And you can't just not be from here sometimes and get that trust <laughs> automatically. Yeah. Because yeah. as as we've just talked about, like, people are not generally helpful. So if I don't know who your grandma is, or I don't know who, mm-hmm. you know, um, I grew up on the same street or went to the same school with, then generally there's not that trust there and it takes a little longer to build. I, I, I'm envious of that. Like hearing that, I understand how that can be, how that can be uh, limiting in, I guess, like receiving help, which I totally, totally understand. Mm-hmm. But I'm also just envious of this tight knittedness that I haven't gotten to experience myself. Um, oh yeah. It's lovely. Mm-hmm. It's a strength and a weakness, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's definitely oh. when you know people, you know, your people and you know who can help and you so-and-so from down the street to help you get your horse out of the gutter or whatever it is, you know, um, <laughs> like you're able to have those connections in that community. But um, there's also that when you really, really need it and that you don't have the resources, then it's harder to ask for. And scary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it makes oh. me think for some reason I I've never had like a good doctor since since my PCP from like childhood because she saw my entire family, like my grandparents, my parents and me. So she could just like look at me and tell what was going on. And like that was really nice. And then, you know, here in Philadelphia, I've had like five different doctors at the same practice. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. uh, It's probably even more. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah. They're all subsidiary of Penn and Jefferson. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Speaking to, you know, not just the mental health, but healthcare in general, many practitioners leave here, Mm -hmm. you know, like they get their license or they, you know, find a better paying opportunity because we can't pay healthcare professionals um, in this area the way that we should pay healthcare professionals um, to stay. So they tend to leave. And so we have heavy turnover uh, just based on where we're at because we don't have the resources to keep them. And then it's like, I'm not going to tell my doctor anything because then they might, you know, tell CPS or, you know, just like. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then my therapist as well. I'm not going to say anything because like then. Yep. And I I have to tell, I always review potentiality you know, and um, let them know that even if things are happening, my first call is not 911. My first call is not, you know, to get you to the emergency room. It's let's talk about this and why it's happening. Right. And make sure that we're doing the things to keep you safe that we can do. Um, And if that goes outside of that, then we definitely want to seek help from outside people. But um, there's, there's a lot of fear in disclosing mental health, you know, intrusive thoughts or um, things that happen that is just heavily stigmatized. So yeah, it's been at my personal primary. I don't, I don't think I've had a primary care physician since before COVID. Because she left <laughs> and I wasn't able to find anyone who was taking patients. And so I've just been, you know, really leaning on my specialty service doctors, uh, my gynecologist and my rheumatologist. So, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. My my sleep doctor, my psychiatrist are like, yeah, you guys got it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you speak a little bit about narrative therapy and, and mm-hmm. how you use it in your community? Yes. So the biggest thing um, that I think was really cool for us to talk about is the between Appalachian culture and some of the Native American practices as well. So storytelling is big in both cultures. Verb, you know, theirs are oral stories generally is the way that it has always been practiced in the past. But something that I've incorporated is a lot of written and options. So we'll write, we'll do it verbally or orally, or we will, um, you know, draw it out really whatever someone's comfortable with. But we can do that through uh, grief processing. We can do that with trauma processing. It's been really, really helpful to embrace that as a part of the culture around here because because it is so, I, I want to say, you know, culturally competent. It's some It's a way that we process and we share things anyway. So this is the way that we can, you know, do that and address some of these mental health symptoms as well. I can imagine the challenge that arises when working with the Native American community in trusting a, a anybody in a position of healthcare, considering that up to just like 40 years ago, officially, 
care care was being uh, systematically weaponized against the community. So I'd love to hear about what overcoming that barrier was like. So I feel so lucky and grateful. Let me just start by saying I'm coming from a place of a super white woman. <laughs> you know, like I I um, worked on the res for um, a couple of years in their uh, hospital. So. I feel grateful for the opportunity and everything that I was able to learn. I've lived adjacent to the reservation and grew up with, you know, a lot of Native American population. So the culture was already present, but you really don't earn the intricacies of the tribe until you're with the tribe, you know. Mm -hmm. So I work, I worked with the Cherokee Indian Hospital Authority. And what has been wonderful about that is that they have been able to take the funds that they have gotten and build their own systems for their own people. And that has just been lovely to watch. Obviously, there's room for improvement and there's always room for improvement in any system. But I love that they've been able to take the resources um, that they've gotten as retribution for like what they deserved and more. They deserve more. But, but yeah, they've taken it and been able to serve their community better. So they have a behavioral and mental health branch. They have an entirely brand new hospital that they built. So they have their own tribal insurance. So they're really able to serve in a culturally appropriate way. And everyone coming in who isn't Native need, needs to and has to learn some of those things as well. So it's been very enlightening. That is so cool. Yeah, that's really cool. What what a system to witness the growth of. And I definitely hear you on that. Yes, retribution is very important, but it, it is it is the minimum of what should be being received. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It shouldn't be a reservation, right? Yeah. Um, it should be theirs. Yep. But um, yeah, that's a good place to start. Um, <laughs> so that's not there yet, oh, obviously. Yeah. But uh, so they started with the hospital and then they were able to create, you know, this behavioral and mental health branch because of the needs of their community. The systems that I've witnessed grow is you know, integrating those services better, advocacy for those services over the past uh, little bit, especially with technology and the way that we've been able to um, share things with social media. So that's that's probably the biggest, like starting to, they began incorporating the mental health in schools. So that was really cool. That was the how I got hired on was uh, beginning to work in the schools before COVID hit, obviously, and working with the higher needs behavioral kids. But it takes a lot of cultural competence to do that because then it's like, okay, well, these kids are playing stickball at five. So they're already, they already have aggressive tendencies because that's their culture, right? Like there's, they're heavy, playful kids and there's nothing wrong with that. It's about intention, right? So like, we don't want to do anything with malice. So then you get into dividing what's malicious and what's just native kids being native kids, you know? Yeah. And like what looks aggressive to you mm -hmm. is not necessarily aggressive to them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's been, I've, I've watched those systems be integrated and that's been really important for the community, I think just to have it so readily available. It's making me think of the cultural competency part of, you know, schooling that I went through. And it was just like, people are different. And like, I think it, it's on, Period. you know, it's so on the, the therapist and the outsider <laughs> yeah. to, to learn about the culture that they specifically are helping. Mm -hmm. uh, because there are so many different cultures that don't fit into a Western style of treatment. Exactly. Yeah. Or even a, you know, I, I European. Like, yes, yes, the European, whatever that looks like, because um, I had to also fit in whenever I was like the only white person, you know? So I had to prove that I was there for their good mm. and, you know, be very submissive to that fact. And I was fine with that, you know? I'm able to accept. Hey, I'm the white girl in the classroom and that's what that is. But it was great to be able to be like, well, at least I grew up locally. And so the questions I would get is like, who's your family? Where are you from? What road you grow up on? Do you eat pinto beans and cornbread? Like, <laughs> like tell me what, what you like or what you know about native culture. And so it was, I was able to like have those really good conversations and I think build some trust through that just by the luck of laterally living near them. You know, I don't know that that's the case always. 
I would love some pinto uh, beans and cornbread right now, by the way. So, so thank you for that. <laughs> and then on a more serious note, I'm, I'm like thinking too, coming off of what both of you were talking about, how we, the Eurocentric colonial mentality is itself very violent and very patriarchal centered and very exploitative. And when, like, obviously indigenous communities have had the colonial influence, unfortunately, but when coming to populations that are inherently non-patriarchal and then the audacity the audacity of coming from that point of view and labeling some type of behavior as aggressive right um, oh my gosh Mm -hmm. is really like hitting me right now yeah that's that's a great point Mm -hmm. yeah and the implications of that on how our system works like labeling behavior like how far back that can go to like impacting somebody's life Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's heavy. That's yeah. that's yeah, very I'm heavy. Feeling that. mm-hmm. And feeling my own healing from that too, which I think as white therapists and as white clinicians, we recognizing as white therapists that not only do we need to heal, but there's something to heal from if there's a difference there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's mandatory, that it's necessary that we do we do that work. And, and whether that it like that includes cultural competency, but that also includes how we assess, you know, how we assess behavior, how we assess interaction, how we assess family. Oh, there's a lot of things. Absolutely. Like traditionally, the nuclear system is not a thing. You know, on the res, it's like, oh, well, so-and-so lives with their mom and their dad is no longer in the picture. So dad's, you know, living in Oklahoma now. And then we're living with grandma and five you know, other cousins. So, I mean, it's very, very different from what we're used to seeing as far as, you know, the mom and pop and two kids. So. Which itself is already a flawed system. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like the family system itself is already so can, can deprive us because when we are talking about like, you just need your family or being deprived of community. So then if your family is you know, for whatever reason needs to split up or does split up. I, I mean, I'm just thinking about what you were mentioning in the beginning about, uh, about like the other, the previous population too, is this, what are you doing wrong? Like, what have yeah. you done wrong to, or what has your family done wrong mm-hmm. to fail here? Yeah. The mm-hmm. great, the great thing about, you know, the native community though, is they are a community, like no matter what, whether that's, good or bad sometimes, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, they, they know everybody and everyone knows everybody. And so people take care of people a lot of the time, you know? Yeah. And in a way that might not necessarily be seen as good, mm-hmm. air quotes, good to the mm-hmm. system, but yeah. that is like what is needed. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Speaking to more of the systems. So they have their own, um, you know, child protective services and family safety here. I don't know how they do it on other reservations, but um, family safety is all about not the threat of taking your kids away. It's how do we mend what is happening right now? Like, we can't. how do we come together versus we're going to take your kid away until you get it together, you know? Yeah. Following the long tradition of removal of native children from families. What what an amazing system that is. That sounds Mm -hmm. like. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately they do serve to make sure that everyone's safe. So it does happen, but they do everything in their power not to do that. Yeah, it's it's also just making me continue to challenge in myself, like what my colonial beliefs are. I know mm-hmm. being a music therapist, having to overcome like, oh, it's, you know, like, what is swearing in music and like, you know, working with kids, how appropriate is it? What are, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just like very, really challenging that. And, you know, like, oh, no, we can only listen to this. And it's like, why, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I, during my experience, so after COVID, I worked in a rehab for a little while for um, the hospital and I did a lot of music therapy stuff and not a lot. Once a week, I did some music stuff with them. Um, And they also had their traditional music a few times a day. Even we had a cultural director there, not director. I don't remember what her title was, but she handled all the culturally necessary things to on the day to day. So we did cleansing in the mornings and, you know, they did 
singing and all kinds of cool stuff. But they also have been, I mean, obviously there's music that they like listening to. So the only limit I ever had to set with like music therapy was, okay, so this is objectifying women. Um, so we're not going to <laughs> listen to this song anymore because it was like, I, I used to have them write down songs and we would play it and we would say, okay, so what's the significance of this song? Why is this important? And it was anonymous for the most part. And so whenever it came to, you know, the very graphic rap, I was like, okay, if there's any more music like this, we're going to stop. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Because not only is there, you know, that generally objectifying women, but in Native American communities, domestic violence is like three times what it is uh, for the normal population. So that was a big deal that I wanted to make sure that it wasn't aggressive toward women. And there's a lot of, you know, theories and talks about why that's a thing. Um, and a big piece of that being, you know, how do how, how are Native men incorporating what it's supposed to look like whenever you're in a matriarchal society. So then there's like this headbutting that happens. Mm. Um, so music is a big deal, but there's definitely some exploration that they, that we've had to do around, oh, why are we doing this? And, you know, what's appropriate? Yeah. Sure. And like, mm -hmm. why, why, you know, what, what are we gaining from listening to this? And like, what is it about this music that makes you yes. feel like you want to listen to it right now? Yep. And like, when I worked with kids, that honestly was the best part was like, tell me about like what you're into. That's all I care about. Mm -hmm. Like they made this great playlist and like kids would come back be like, you still have that playlist? Like, yes, I do. Mm -hmm. And it was just like this really cool totem that we had that just like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's great. Yeah, that's it's always about intention and what feeling is it giving you? You know, that was always my big one. Like, are you feeling powerful? Are you feeling Ooh. angry? Are you feeling aggressive? Or is this soothing? Or, you know, what what is the real feeling that's coming from this? Sorry, we're going on a tangent about music therapy, but it's also reminding me of uh, part of my thesis I wrote. Uh, you know, I was I was working with clients uh, who were uh, undergoing cancer treatment, and I, I was talking to one client who really loved metal music, and mm -hmm. we talked a lot about like what what in this metal music, what does it give you, and just like the joy and euphoria, and like also the being in a crowd during a metal concert, like what that mm -hmm. feels like, and it's it's really cool. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Um, a sense of belonging. That's, that's mm -hmm. what a big piece of music is. Mm -hmm. Almost like sometimes the opposite of what mainstream thoughts are about that music. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, I, I allowed every every kind of music. It was it wasn't limited unless it was literally aggressive, you know. Well, Kathy, I'm so glad that you are have agreed to be on our show today. I think we learned a lot about two really important populations that Joanne and I in our interviews have not been able to touch yeah. on. So I'm just very grateful for that. Of course. Um, are there any final thoughts or I can't I always spring this on people. I know <laughs> I'm like, wait to put me on the spot. Final words uh -oh. of wisdom that Here can change comes. someone's life right now that you'd like to bestow upon us. Just kidding. Oh, Any final thoughts? <laughs> oh my gosh. So um, I guess my final thoughts are through this conversation, it sounds like keeping in mind that cultural competency, like you said, isn't just everyone's different. It's <laughs> no, literally, please, it you know, research the populations that you're working with. Research why they do what they do. Don't just challenge it understanding where we're coming from as far as far as where we fit into that dynamic and our own identities and you know the the things that we can bring to the table but submitting submitting to the idea that we are coming from a place of power sometimes and we just or every time actually because we're our profession is inherently you know in a power dynamic already so I encourage everyone, I guess, to be, and it's something that I had to learn hard, <laughs> you know, it's a hard learning experience, but learning to submit, which is an awful, um, I used to see that as a very awful word, but submitting mm. to the learning of it versus fighting it, I guess, is my final thoughts around it. 
Absolutely. Are there any resources that you'd like to share with us for clinicians, for clients, for people in general? Um, so specifically the two things that we talked about today. So the Rural Information Hub has great uh, information about uh, statistics and demographics of people in your area or any area that you would ever be curious about. So definitely encourage people to take a look at that. I got that from my rural advocacy professor in grad school, and she was amazing. <laughs> so that was a big piece of our learning because of where we're at is mm. uh, rural advocacy. And then for Native American stuff, there are so many books. So my entire Native American studies certificate was reading, you know, reading articles of, you know, substance use, tobacco and its uses, you know, just that why, you know, heart disease and diabetes are so prominent and it goes back to, you know, the implementation of colonial practices and why do we make pr fry bread and fry breads because that's all they were given when they were given and, you know, put on the reservations. Um, so how we've directly impacted Native American health and how crazy that is, you know? So I definitely encourage reading. James Mooney has some great stuff out there, uh, books, articles, all kinds of really good things. Well, again, thank you so much for talking with us today and sharing all of your beautiful insights. Again, like Sarah said, on populations that we really haven't talked about much on our podcast, but are large populations that are very underserved. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thanks for the time, Kathy. We hope to talk to you again soon. Well, I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Whoa. You can check us out on Instagram at TNDPod, on Twitter at TNDPod1, when it's in the number one, or visit our website at TNDPodcast.com. If you'd like to support us, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash TNDPodcast. You also, you also can support us by listening. Um, you can email questions to us if you have them at therapistnextdoor at gmail.com. You can also find um, the interview request form in our Instagram bio if you would like to be on the show because we would love to have you. Sarah, is there anything that you would like to plug? Jenna, not much. Uh, okay. bl blog posts are going. Yeah, here, here comes much though. Blog posts are going. <laughs> every month. I, I am really excited to share that my email, I don't know the words for this. I'm finally doing like emails to folks that register for them on my site. So like look, a newsletter. Cool. Thank you. I finally got a goddamn email set up for newsletter. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. And we'll, we'll some, add a link there. So we'll if you want to subscribe. There. Yeah, that would be wonderful. And you can also look out for some new items in the store available soon, focusing Whoa. on spiritual trauma. Jenna, oh goodness. that's amazing. <laughs> um, you know, same, same old, same old. OrianaTherapy.com, working on fighting uh, diet culture and also anxiety, embracing and fighting it at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, which is difficult but possible. And that's about it for me. Plenty. Yeah, I don't really have anything else to plug, but I will in the future. So, Alan. yeah. Until next time, we, we are, your are your therapists, therapists next, next door. door. <laughs> Bye. Bye.